I do want to uh, say a couple sort of comments, not by way of preface, just comments for you. Uh, one is, one of the things Paul does in the letters, he, he says, I've heard. And, uh, you know, he says, uh, I've heard of your love and of the hope you have in the Lord Jesus, the love you have for one another, things like that. And uh, Ben has become a good friend of mine, and I have heard in multiple, uh, multiple times from him of the love that you have as a church for him and his family and for college students. And as a campus minister at VCU, yes, I was nearly in tears last night um, because of that awful game. <laughs> but as a campus minister at VCU, um, I, have a, I have a great sense of actually the great blessing that a church can be to a local uh, campus pastor. So ben didn't tell me to tell you that at all, but thank you um, from me for him. Um, we are going to be looking together actually the next two weeks at this little postcard epistle. Uh, I haven't tried to write it on the back of a postcard, but I think it would fit. Um, called Second John, and su- surprise, surprise, it's after First John. It's before Third John, and if you turn all the way to the end of your Bible, you're going to hit Revelations. You just take take a left, like three pages, and you'll be in Second John. And uh, I, w- I was reading an article recently that was saying that the, the stories you first hear as a child uh, shape, shape you in ways that other stories don't. It gives you sort of a vision for life, for the good life. Um, and, you know, th- this causes me obviously to think, well, uh, what's the world going to be like in a few years? Or uh, after all, recently, popular children's books are books like Harry Potter or... The Twilight series is very popular for teenagers. Uh, so I'm from Washington State, so I wonder if there's going to be pilgrimages to Forks, which is where the Twilight series is set, which is a t- small, small town on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington. And actually, I've begun to see at VCU Quidditch clubs appear. Do you know what these are? Here too, okay. Well, so you get the idea, right? This, the, sort of the, the stories that we tell ourselves begin to shape us. Quidditch is the game that's played in Harry Potter with brooms. So you have people around campus on brooms. Anyway, um, strange things have happened. Uh, and that, so that, that's what this, this article is saying. And I think that's true. And I think that's actually what the Bible would say too. So it, it, the Bible is all over telling you to get your story right. To get the base story right. And another thing that... Um, that I would say is extremely important is that you get the beginning right. We're going to look at a little bit at the beginning. Um, and, and any author actually knows this. Any, any author knows this. So, you know, often, oftentimes you can pick up a novel or a short story, and the first sentence is very good. It's, just, it's, it's very well thought out. I'm going to share with you sort of a top five um, first lines. This is, yes, from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. It's a great book. Um, She says, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Right, that's what she says. Here's Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, very famous, but uh, understandably so. He says, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of folly, it was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. And you know, it, it sets you up, right? It gives you the trajectory of the story. Um, here is a, a very famous first line, but maybe a lesser known 
novel, Paul Clifford by Edward Bulwer-Lytton. It was a dark and stormy night. The rain fell in torrents, except on occasional intervals where it was checked by a violent gust of wind which swept up the street where our story truly begins. And you just kind of want to keep going, don't you? That's all I have written here, so I won't keep going. And here are two of my favorites from a couple of my favorite authors. This is uh, G.K. Chesterton's The Napoleon of Notting Hill. He says, the human race, to which so many of my readers actually belong, <laughs> has been playing at children's games from the beginning and probably will do it until the end, which is a nuisance for those few people who actually grow up. And this, this is a favorite. I hope you've read this book. If you haven't, go find it, read it. This is uh, well-known, C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This is so great. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> it draws you in, right? Getting, see, getting the story right, and actually getting the beginning of the story right, is incredibly important. Uh, authors understand this. The Bible understands this, and I hope, I hope you get this. You, ha you have to get the beginning right. You have to get your story right. It shapes you. And this is one of the reasons, actually, why in the Bible, especially, actually, in the, in the Psalms, we're just looking at Psalm 5 together for a sec, uh, the word remember is used over and over and over again. Remember. Remember the great acts of God. Remember what, what he has done for you, because you have to get this right. You have to get the story right. Um, we could look at another of these tiny postcard epistles, these one-page letters in our New Testament, one called Philemon. There's an amazing part there where he says, Char charge whatever Onesimus is, has done to my account. He tells Philemon that. Charge it to my account. Where does he get that? Right? Where does he get that language of charging it to his account? Well, Paul has been deep. Paul's the author of that letter. He's been so deeply steeped in this story that what, you, what he has done Jesus says, charge his wrongdoing to my account. He's been so deeply steeped in this story of gospel redemption that he then lives out of it. Okay. Keep all that in mind. And I'm going to read to you in its entirety, Second John. It says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. This is a side note. That's most likely referring to the church. The, the lady and her children is referring to this church. Whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as, we, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Wash yourselves, 
so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's pray together. Our great God, you are the God we believe, the Bible speaks clearly, who made all things, who placed the stars in their place, who made trees, who made birds, who made all things. And yet you are also the God who loves to dwell with your people. You are the God who sent your Son to to walk among us, to be with us, who took on flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, and you are the God who continues to speak to your people. We ask that you would do that that you would speak to us, that you would use me, a sinner though I am, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, um, that we would uh, sit at your feet and learn from you. Now, Lord, would the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight? For we ask in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. I think you probably noticed uh, a few things while I read that passage, or read this whole book. There's, there's some things that really jump out, and some of them, he, he talks quite a bit about uh, love and truth and mercy, and, and it's sort of a book about hospitality, right? He wants to be with them face to face, like I am with you right now. And uh, he also says to not welcome some. And, and you sort of get this, uh, this idea in, in this little book that this is a people that have been shaped by this amazing, amazing story, right? God, he says he, he wants to be with them face to, face to face. Jesus came down, dwelt face to face, right? And w- what is the story of the scriptures? But it's a story of God's love, his truth, his mercy, his grace, his um, great act of hospitality. Hospitality means, you know, uh, outsider love, love for the outsider. This is the story of the scriptures. God's deep love for those who are outside, bringing them close. What's amazing is that with all of the emphasis on uh, love and truth and, uh, and all of this that's happening here, hospitality, is that there's some who you're not supposed to welcome. Did that, I hope that jumped out to you. It's, it's, it's right there. It jumps out to me. Um, there's some, it says, basically, who go around in sheep's clothing, and it says that they are deceivers and antichrist. I have not read the Left Behind books. I haven't read much by way of sort of apocalyptic literature that's been written recently. 
But I know the common perception of antichrists, and there's sort of two that I have big in my mind. One is it's sort of a picture of the devil, you know, red, dragony sort of creature, horns, maybe a triton, looking very mean. Um, or maybe a very suave gentleman who works for the European Union. He's in an Armani suit or something. You know, and this, this isn't, neither of these images that I have in my mind fit. Um, this is actually a person who is going around talking about Jesus with people. He's actually talking about Jesus with people, uh, but he's denying something. Did you catch what he's denying? He's denying Jesus coming in the flesh. Let me say that again. This is very important that you get this. This person who's talking about Jesus is denying his coming in the flesh. Okay? That's verse 7. It says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. He says, Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And then he also says down in verse 10 and 11, he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Here's, here's what I want us to sort of dwell on for a short while. Why is this so key? Why is the coming of Jesus in the flesh so key? Why do you have to get that right? Uh, and what, what I'm going to do... In some ways, I'm going to take verse 7 as a, as, a, as a stepping point. It says the coming of Jesus in the flesh. That coming, there's sort of a, you're not exactly sure if that was the coming of Jesus in the flesh at his incarnation or the coming of, uh, in, in, of Jesus in the flesh at his return, or was it the coming of his resurrection in the flesh? Those are all fleshly uh, existences of Jesus. So we're going, to, we're going to take each one of those, and we're going to say, okay, what, what's happening? Why is it so important to say Jesus came in the flesh? Okay, so, so here, here's sort of my outline for those of you who like to take notes. Um, I'm going to say Jesus was in the flesh. He is in the flesh. He's going to, he will be. He's going to be in the flesh. That's all just coming out of the word coming there. Okay, verse 7. So Jesus was in the flesh. Now, I hope you got why, in part, I emphasized the beginning of stories, right? Those first lines, not just because they're fun to read. They're fun to read, right? It was a dark and stormy night. That's fun to read. But um, I, I, I read that to you because it's very important to get the beginning right. Right? Maria von Trapp. Let's start at the very beginning. Right? That, it's a very, wait, what's she, a very good place to start. Something like that. She gets it. Okay? It's important. Start at the beginning. And, and that's what, when we open up our Bibles and we go to the beginning, uh, what do you find? You find Genesis 1, and it's this strange chapter because it's sort of, it's sort of poetry, but it's, it's, it's history, and it's sort of prose, and some people call it heightened prose. And they do that because there's, like, like most good poetry, like actually sort of like that first sentence from Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, there's some repetition, there's some rhythm to it. And so it, it's, it's prose, but what, what is it, you know, what is it? And, uh, 
And what it's saying, it's saying a couple messages very, very loud and clearly. Okay, one, God made all things. That's one of the really, really loud messages. And the other thing is that he likes it. So you read in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, and, and God made, and he saw it was good. And God said, God made, he saw. God said, God made, he saw. You know, I get it. You know, and and he, he keeps, he, but it keeps, it keeps coming at us day after day because he, want, he wants you to get that he, God made this world and he looks upon it and he doesn't go, yuck. He says, oh, that's, this is good. And, and at the height of this, right, is God making man male and female in his image. You actually, you can read, he says, Ooh, that's very good. That's very good. And, um, you know, there's quite a few things that can be said about that. But a couple things that I want to say, and I think this, this bears on our passage here, is that God looks upon fleshly, earthy, you know, skin, stuff like that. And he looks upon it and he, he actually smiles. He loves physical existence. He likes that this is real. Not in some platonic sort of ideal sense, but there's actually a real being. He loves that. I, I was driving here on 64 this morning, coming from Richmond, and I, I hope you've begun to see sort of the trees are looking like fireworks. On the, on the edge of their, of their branches, there's little sparks that are coming out of them. It's amazing. They're, they're not sparks. They're buds, right? But I, I understand they're not sparks. But they look like fireworks. They're so beautiful. And God is looking down. He's saying, this is good. This is lovely. And um, of course, if you know this story, I hope you know this story. Uh, Adam and Eve ate the apple. Or they plunged their teeth into the pomegranate or bit the banana or whatever it was. They ate the fruit. They, they enacted the great rebellion. Right? They, they decided, God, I know you made all things. And you said it was all good and, and you placed us here. But I think we are the, really the ones who are going to decide what this fleshly existence is going to look like. And so, Adam and Eve and all their descendants, you and I alike, have been in great rebellion. In our, in our fleshly existence, we are going against God. Okay. What, what does this necessarily have to do with this passage? Why am I going all the way to Genesis? The coming of Jesus. He, here's the thing. God works within his creation. Uh, with, well, just that. Within his creation. He, in some ways, you, you would say he has to take on flesh. Because he has to redeem it of its physicality of its physical fallenness, right? And this actually is said very, very loud and clearly in this book called Romans. Some of you might know that book. Chapter 5, verses 18 through 19. It says, Therefore, as one trespass, the eating of the apple, the great rebellion, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Adam and Eve and all of you and me. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. 
For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. Okay, one man, his obedience. That was physical obedience. That was Jesus in the flesh. Jesus had to be born of a virgin, right? He had to live. He had to eat and dine. He had, he had to walk. He had, God had to be a man because he had to redeem Adam and Eve and all of their progeny. Right? That's, this, is the, this is the story of the Bible. It's a story of physical existence. And God, this is amazing. The God, the God who spoke the world into being. This is, you can uh, read about that in uh, John chapter 1 or Colossians chapter 1. That's basically, say, those texts are saying that was Jesus. He speaks this world into being. He's the same God that says, I'm going to become, I'm going to become part of it. And Romans 5 tells us, and this is why this is so important in 2 John, you have to affirm this. Jesus came in the flesh. He was obedient in the flesh. He died that you might have life. His physical body died. This is impo- okay, incredibly important for our redemption from our sins, right? So that, that great rebellion could be reversed. You have to affirm the coming of Jesus in the flesh. That's why it's such strong language. Okay. Jesus is in the flesh. Okay, we, get, we have to affirm that Jesus was in the flesh in his, sort of, in his incarnation. He had to be in the flesh because he had to do that obedience that Adam didn't do. We, that's what Romans 5 tells us. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 14, tells us Jesus is in the flesh in terms of his resurrection, and it, and it has to be. It has to be. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 17. He says, this is the Apostle Paul, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Okay, see, Paul, right, like John in 2 John, is saying you have to affirm the coming of Jesus in the flesh in terms of his resurrection. You, you have to affirm that. And you lose, actually, he basically says you lose everything if you don't affirm that. And I, I hope you got this. One of, one of the things he says at the very beginning is Peter shouldn't be in front of you if that didn't happen. He says, he says uh, your preaching is in vain, right? Don't do it. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, y'all, that's a word I just learned since I moved to Virginia because I'm from Washington. Y'all, we shouldn't be here. We should not be getting together on Sunday mornings, which after all is the day of resurrection. That's why we worship on Sunday instead of Saturday. We shouldn't be here if Jesus is not in the flesh in terms of his resurrection. Um, just this morning on the way here, I was, I was listening to a song singing loudly in my car um, by a, a band, a favorite band of mine called Page France. 
and they have a song called Jesus. And when I first heard this song, it was sort of, it, it struck me a little bit strange, and it may strike you as a little strange, but I'll explain why I think it's so profound. And the chorus says, Jesus came up from the ground so dirty, this is the strange part, with worms in his hair and a hand so sturdy. Jesus came up from the ground so dirty with worms in his hair and a hand so sturdy. What he's saying is it really happened. Jesus really was, bar- was buried. Now, we know, we know that it's in a tomb. This is, this is poetry. But the, the point is this, is this is real, okay? And his hand is sturdy. And the resurrection truly happened. It really happened. We have to affirm the coming of Jesus in terms of his resurrection as physical, fleshly, real, earthy. God became dirty that we might have life. He died that we might have life. And we have to affirm his resurrection. We lose, okay, if we don't affirm his incarnation, we, we lose this powerful effect of his perfect obedience because of our disobedience, right? If, 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 we, if we don't affirm his uh, being in the flesh in terms of his resurrection, we basically just lose everything. Let's, let's go home. That's, that's what Paul says. So we have to affirm those things. Um, but we also have to affirm that Jesus will be. He will be in the flesh. When Jesus returns, he will return in his bodily existence. We can read about that in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to read about it a little bit in Revelation 21. I hope you get the power of this. God, right, the one who spoke the world into being, who actually, Colossians 1 says that that Jesus holds all things together. I think I maybe said this before when I was with you, but if Jesus wasn't holding me together, I'd be like the wicked witch of the West, right? Like a puddle on your floor. That's what we're talking about, the God who is that powerful. And what we're talking about here is that that God... Jesus actually takes on a physicality. It's astounding. It's incredibly important. This is Revelation 21, verse 1 through 5. This is John saying, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Isn't it interesting that the word we, uh, earth can either mean dirt or sort of the whole existence of physical reality? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down, coming down out of, out of heaven. Okay, it's, it's leaving heaven and coming down to earth. Earth is physical existence, okay? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold. I feel like I should have a trumpet saying. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. Reminds me of John chapter 1. He dwelt among us. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Jesus is going to be with us, physically speaking. Amazing. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. I don't know everything that your congregation is going through. I know we prayed for some people. I imagine some of that has to do with pain, mourning, right? In our physical bodies. It's saying, God's going to dwell with us physically. He's going to dwell with you. But you're not going to experience mourning. I want to say, come Lord Jesus. Uh, For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, trumpet, behold, I am making all things, all things new. Sure reminds me of Genesis chapter 1. He's making things new. Uh, This is is telling us uh, Jesus has to come in the flesh. He has, to come, he has to come in the flesh in his, in his return, in his second coming. He has to because in, he will dwell among his people. And being with Jesus, right, this is, this is the, one of the amazing things of Jesus' incarnation. Being with Jesus meant a whole body, right? I, I tend to think that if I was God and I had, you know, God powers, I might use those powers to be like fireball in my hand. I don't know, throw it just to see a tree. Because it would be interesting. God, Jesus doesn't do that. He comes around and he, being with Jesus means being whole in your physical existence. He heals people's legs that don't work. He gives sight to the blind. Some of you know that spiritually speaking, but he did that. He did that physically too. Being with Jesus meant being new creation. Physically speaking. Being with Jesus meant being physically whole, meant being uh, in the flesh a lovely. And what Revelation says is when he returns, he's going to make you completely new. He's going to do, do a Genesis 1 on you. He's going to look upon you and say, that's very good. That's very good. So, Second John I'll tell you what, next week we're going to look at some of the truth and the love and all this other stuff that's happening in this book. But for now, let's affirm the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Jesus took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He was born. He walked. Jesus had to do that because we we had to have uh, a perfect obedience, Romans 5. Jesus had to raise from the dead. He had to. 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus has to come back physically because we long for a day where there's not going to be any more mourning. We don't want any more crying. No more pain. And God says when he does that, he's going to make all things new. It's going to be just like the beginning. It's going to be completely lovely. And he's going to walk with us. You know, that's what happens in Genesis. God walks in the garden. That's what happens when Jesus came. He walked with his people. That's actually, that's what happened after his resurrection. One of my favorite scenes, because I love fish and I like cooking fish over fires, Jesus cooks a fish over this fire on a beach. I also love beaches. I grew up on one of the islands off of Seattle. Um, And he walked with Peter, right? And he's going to come back and he's going to walk with you. And you're going to see him face to face. And he's going to say, behold, I'm making you new. Let's pray.